Well, welcome again, 2018, the first Sunday of the year. We're so glad that you are here with us this morning. Um, in 2000 was the last time, let's get that. So 2000 was the last time, if you are aware, there's a, a football game today. I'm not sure if you were aware of that. Uh, January 2000 was the last time that the Bills were in a playoff game. So all week long, I've heard stories about what was it like, or do you remember when uh, they were in the Super Bowl? And there's all the, or excuse me, in the playoffs, not the Super Bowl, that's even further back, of course. Uh, in the playoffs, and I've heard stories about, well, we were in the delivery room, uh, and now my kid has started college, and uh, those type of stories, just all these different things. And then there's other stories that are more sad than that to say, uh, I was uh, with my father, and he just passed away last week, and so this is, I wish he had been here to experience it with me, those type of things. But if you remember back, can you remember back to the year 2000, early 2000, January of 2000? You had just come across this great gap called Y2K. Does everyone remember this? I mean, we were pretty nervous. We were pretty nervous that, that at the stroke of midnight of 2000, that all of a sudden around the globe, ATMs would start spitting money out into the streets and people would be fighting each other for the last morsel of food left on the planet. This is, like, this is what we thought would happen. Y2K was going to be a big mess. But we survived. We got through it, and we are moving forward 17, 18 years later. When we think about it, uh, we were worried about Y2K. When you look at a new year, there's always uh, two options that you have each year. First of all, you can waste away the year by worrying about all the mistakes that you made uh, the previous year. So you can waste away the entire year going, well, I don't want to make the mistake I made in January again this January. And you, you kind of follow that up and you just, you, you, you spend your whole year in timidity uh, worried about the mistakes or the problems that you made uh, last year because you don't want to make those mistakes again. Or you can decide to make the most of a new year, uh, approach the new year as a clean slate, as I just talked about a minute ago. This room is a very good example of that. We have a clean slate to start the, the new year with, where we don't have the decorations up anymore. Christmas is down. The Christmas lights are down. We're starting with a clean slate. And guess what? By the time we get to December, next December, there will be Christmas decorations again. You know? Like, it's going to be good. It's going to be exciting. We don't have to wish that there, like, there, there's... There's a new year here. There's a new clean slate in front of us. Can we turn that mic down just a hair, please? I'm feeling like I'm very careful not to talk loudly. Thank you. We make the most of the new year. The point I want to get across is we're going to have to deal with our lives in this year. That time is not going to sit still until we make up our mind with what to do uh, this year. Time is not going to sit still. Raise your hand if you've already made uh, your New Year's resolution and you've broken it. Please raise your hand for everyone to see. Yeah, there we go. All right. Uh, raise your hand if you have not made your New Year's resolution for the year. That's my hand. I have not made any type of specific New Year's resolution. Do you realize that it's January the 7th, right? So your New Year's resolution is now seven days post the new year. Uh, time is going to move forward whether or not uh, you make your resolution. And whether or not you have to make a resolution or not uh, is it. But here's the, here's the deal. If we're going to do something with our lives... It doesn't really matter how long the year is or how much time has passed. Do you believe that? If you're going to do something with your life, time is going to move forward. So it doesn't actually matter what day of the week it is, what, what 
time of year it is, if you're going to do something with your life, the date does not matter. What matters is if you make that decision to do something. And that decision can happen on July the 22nd, and that decision can happen on December the 24th, and that decision can happen today, January 7th. So what are you going to do in 2018? This year, is it going to be any different than other years? So many of you, you did go through a tough year last year. I have the honor, it's a privilege, honestly, for me to be able to, to listen to people. They call or they come in the office and tell me about what's going on in their lives or I get to visit in the hospital. Some of you had a very difficult 2017. I'm not going to ignore that. It, it would be foolish to say that, well, just shake that off. It's a new year. Don't worry about it. Some of you have some pretty deep scars from 2017. But as you look forward to 2018, uh, there may be setbacks, there may be failures, there may be things that you go up against this year or things that you've recovered from last year that happen in the boardroom or happen in the classroom or happen in the dorm room or happen in the living room that are going to be very, very difficult. It would be foolish of us to assume that all we do is look at the new year and say, it's going to be great, it's going to be different, it's going to be wonderful. Because if we're not looking at it with the eyes of reality that say, wait a minute, there's some real problems we're going to have to face, uh, we need to be able to come to reality with that. But I do believe that there is a season that helps us. This, this starting over, this new season, the clean slate is a reality. It is something that we kind of reset our cycle to, and it's good for us to do here as a church as well. And so just like the sanctuary has been reset, it's like God is saying, let's start over. In Proverbs chapter 17, 24, this is a paraphrase. It says, an intelligent person aims at wise actions, but a fool starts off in many directions. A wise person aims at wise, excuse me, an intelligent person aims at wise actions, but a fool starts off in many directions. Some of you are wise. Some of you are going in many directions. Over the Christmas break, our family went to Chattanooga, Tennessee. We have family members who live there, and we, we rented a house and got to stay in this beautiful lake, and we, we just got to experience the coldest that Tennessee has ever experienced in years. We were there for it, so that was really exciting. But we, the place that we stayed on, on New Year's Day morning, uh, while we were staying there, there was, we, we had this lakefront spot, and out of nowhere, it seemed, uh, there was all of a sudden these sailboats come across the horizon at this lake. And what we found out, we Googled it, we looked it up, uh, there was a sailing club that was down the lake from us. And every year they start on the first of the year, they have uh, this sailing competition and they have to go down across the lake and around a buoy and back. And we got to have like ringside seats to this. I've never really seen anything like that up close. It was kind of neat to see how these different boats, a uh, different trajectory and how they angle and follow the winds and different things like that. From our perspective on the side, now they had already been, the race had already started when they came across, but it was clear. There was a clear victor already, even before the halfway point, because that person had their trajectory marked. They were spot on. And these other boats were trying to get the wind right, trying to figure it out. And they're all tracking back and forth, trying to figure out how to chase down this one boat that was just way out in front of everybody else. Why? Because they had the right direction for the wind. They had it marked correctly. That boat was leaning way out, and there was someone way out on the edge of it trying to counterbalance it. It's, if you've ever done sailing, it's ama I've never done it. So it just it seemed amazing to me, like as cold a day as it was for these guys to be hanging way out over the water and just letting that boat fly. It was pretty neat to see. 
But in that process, that boat had clearly had his course set. As we get into our message today, as we get into this new series, you will see that Jesus had a clear course set for himself. This morning we're going to start, we're going to be in the book of Luke. And I want to just give you a little background on the book of Luke. Uh, if you're not uh, familiar with the book, it is one of the four gospels. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It starts the New Testament. Uh, each is a biographical sketch of Jesus, emphasizing this true story, the story of Jesus Christ, different aspects and facts and, and uh, storyline of Jesus as he walked the earth. There are different perspectives of each of the Gospels. I know it, it took me a while to kind of realize this, that each Gospel is telling the same story, but some things are specific uh, and, and unique in each of their uh, renditions, and then there's other things that are very similar, even sometimes the text is exactly the same. And that's because uh, the book of Matthew is written to those who are Jewish in their background. The book of Mark is written to those who are Romans, so the Roman rulers of the day. Uh, John is written to those who are Greek, and John's approach to the Gospels was less of a narrative and more talking about the glory of God and God uh, showing himself through his son Jesus and that Jesus was the light of the world who is to come. And Luke was written to a Gentile audience or an audience that did not understand the Jewish laws and traditions and their roles, what they were supposed to do at the synagogue and how they were supposed to prepare, prepare their uh, altar uh, for sacrifices and things like that. He's writing to an audience who doesn't understand all of those things, which is actually appropriate for us. So some of you may have a really good understanding of Jewish practices of the day, and we do as, as well as we can. We try to teach that and, and, and learn about that because context matters. But it's actually appropriate that we would read this book of Luke because we are all Gentiles. We're not coming from the traditional Jewish customs in the same way that they were then. So we can read through it there like that. They do tell the same story of Jesus. And what we see in the Gospel of Luke is a little bit different in the others. It is the longest of all the Gospels. There are 1,151 verses, and 568 of those verses are simply quotations of the words of Jesus. If you have a Bible that has the red letter words of Jesus, you'll see there is a lot of red in the book of Luke. So half of Luke's gospel, the longest gospel, is quoting verbatim what Jesus said. To read Luke, it would take the average person uh, just sitting and reading in the corner, uh, uh, your nook at home, whatever that looks like in your den. It'll take you about two hours just to read through as a standard pace uh, through uh, the words that Jesus said through uh, his author Luke. And if you have an opportunity to do that, I would strongly encourage you to do that as we begin this sermon series. So that's Luke the book. Let me talk about Luke the author, the actual person who wrote this book. Luke and Acts are written by the same author. They are both historical biographies. Luke, uh, the book of Luke is telling the story of Jesus, and then the book of Acts is telling the story of the early church. So one is the prequel and one is the sequel. Neither one of them have Java the Hutt, but we have the similar approach of, the, of just this prequel, sequel. Everything is going to tie together. Everything is going to connect together. And the way that the, the gospel plays itself out, you see that is also addressed to Theophilus, uh, these letters written to this, uh, this Gentile who would, was learning about the ways of the Christians, the ways of Jesus. Luke is a learned, educated man in the day where maybe only 10% of the population was educated. Uh, he was either a lawyer or a doctor. Uh, and so for him to have studied at that level, and he travels with Paul, the Apostle Paul. And so he talks about being with Paul. I was with Paul when we were shipwrecked, different things like that. For him to go through that level of education and then still pull away from that and travel with Paul 
uh, was unusual. Some of you have wondered, should I finish college, should I finish school uh, before I pursue ministry opportunities? And other people will say, well, I don't think I'll finish school, I'm just going to follow Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Luke here would probably fight you on that. Uh, he, he wants you to understand that there are some really good things about understanding and, and getting a professional uh, degree and those type of things. Finish schools, serve him well. All the education prepared Luke well for the project that he would have. This is a big chunk of the New Testament written here by Luke. And because of his expertise as a doctor or as a lawyer or this educated professional as he was, it meant that he documented things incredibly well. If God has given you a great mind and you are academically, academically oriented, use that, use that intellect, use it, for, use it to praise God, use it for the cause of Jesus Christ, just like Luke did. All right, so we've called this sermon series, The Journey to Jerusalem. The Journey to Jerusalem. Uh, in your Bibles, if you get them out this morning, uh, I'll be tracking in the New International Version. You can use the Bible in the pew in front of you for using that. Uh, it is on page 1085. We're making our way to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And before we switch the slides, I just want to be able to tell you that there are two bookends for this series. What happens is in Luke chapter 9, 51, let me just read it for you. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely or resolved to set out for Jerusalem. If you have your finger in that passage, you can very quickly and, and move over to chapter 19. So that was chapter 9, verse 51. Stick your hand in there, stick a pen in there. Flip over very quickly to chapter 19, verse 28. And you'll see this verse. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up into Jerusalem. And we see this as Jesus entering Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, what we often preach on Palm Sunday. This was Palm Sunday, Jesus entering Jerusalem. And so what we're going to do as a church is we're going to follow this journey, this path from Jesus setting his eyes towards Jerusalem and Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. This is the journey that is there. This journey would typically take about three days. It's about a three-day journey. But Jesus took almost three months to make this journey. So there was a lot more than just him setting his eyes that he had a journey ahead of him. He was going to walk to, to Jerusalem. There was a lot more that was going to go into that. And we find that he is in these three months teaching and training and developing his disciples to be able to do the work of setting up the church. He's going to be doing that work. And so he wants them to know what it is that they are to do. And so he does a lot in talking and teaching what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And so this is where we're going to be headed this morning. If you've got a white sheet of paper uh, in your bulletin this morning, you'll have the outline for where I'm headed today. And uh, we are going to begin there in Luke chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 51 with this statement. Though reason told him to stay, that's a fill-in for you, Jesus resolved to go. Though reason told him to stay, Jesus resolved to go. Verse 51, as the time approached him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set toward Jerusalem. To set his face toward Jerusalem meant something very different for Jesus than it did for his disciples. 
So Jesus, he's just coming off of the mountain. He was there at the mountain, and what we know as the transfiguration. He had just shown his glory to Peter, James, and John. And if you've ever been in that passage of Scripture, you'll see that Peter says, let's stay here. Let's set up some tents here. This, this is a great spot. Let's not leave this mountaintop experience. And just a couple verses later, Jesus sets his face. He says, I can't stay on this mountaintop. I need to go to Jerusalem. He sets his face, and it means something very different to Jesus than it did for the disciples. There are visions of greatness that is dancing in the heads of the disciples. They are assuming that Jesus is going to come. He's going to go to Jerusalem and rule and reign as this king of the Jews. Uh, They expected him to be just like King David. Jerusalem and glory, if they were part of his cabinet, perhaps they thought, uh, was just around the corner. Oh, it would mean when Jesus would take the throne and they would be part of that. But Jesus had an entirely different vision in his head. He carried it alone and so long. And here's what Jerusalem meant for Jesus. In Luke 13, he says, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem meant one thing for Jesus, absolute certain death. (coughs) Nor was he under any illusions of a heroic death either, that it was going to be something where he would be martyred. He predicted in verse 31, when he took the 12 aside, this is just a few verses earlier, he says, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the prophets, about the Son of Man, will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. Verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. They had no idea what lie before him. But Jesus knew with distinct clarity what would be waiting there for him. So when we think about that, when you think about Jesus' resolution to die, that he has a nature like ours, we cannot forget the humanness of Christ. The humanness of Christ, meaning that he would like to do, he would shrink back from pain just like you and me. My daughter this week, she turned 12, Delia turned 12. And so when she turned 12, parents, you do it however you want, but when she turned 12, she got the right and the privilege to take something and jam it through each of her ears. And so we went to the mall, because that's a great place to have people stab you. And so we went to the mall, and uh, she got, there was uh, two people uh, on either side, and they said, count to three, one, two, three, bam, and we're going to hit you with it, Right? And she was going to have her ears pierced. And so one, two, three, one ear pierced, and the other ear, something crazy happened. I don't know exactly what happened, but all of a sudden, the, uh, the, the gun is aimed up into her ear. It never came out the backside of the ear. And in shock, and it, listen, if you've been here long enough to know, I'm not a needle person. And so my son Elias and I were nowhere near any of this. Uh, We were down the hall, around the corner. I didn't want to have any visions of this, and this is why I don't watch these type of things. So she got readjusted, and then she had to knuckle down and go for it. So now she's not only got two ears, now she's going to get a third one before they uh, got it correct, and then stuck it in there, and now you survived. Good, Davia, you look fantastic this morning. She's a tough cookie. She didn't cry until afterwards. She, she had a little tears kind of welling up in the corners of her eyes. Was that tough? Yeah, it was pretty rough, you know. And we got them for free, too. That was kind of nice. 
<laughs> so Jesus has his eyes set towards Jerusalem. We as human nature, we do not want to feel pain. I was down around the corner. I didn't even want to see pain. What a wimp. Myself, I mean. He would have enjoyed being married, having children, having grandchildren. He would have enjoyed a long life and esteem in the community as the leader that he was in the community. He had a mother. He had brothers. He had sisters. He had special places that he would go to in the mountains to pray. He probably enjoyed hiking and climbing and being there in those mountains. He had special places he wanted to go, and he had to turn his back on all of these things to a vicious whipping and beating and spitting and mocking and crucifixion, and he could see it with clarity. And this is where he turns his eyes. It was not easy it was hard. And we need to use our imagination to some extent to be able to grasp and get a hold of what it meant for Jesus to turn and set his face and resolve to go to Jerusalem. I don't know of any way for us to begin to understand how much he loved us. In John chapter 50, it says, Greater love hath no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus resolutely sets forward towards Jerusalem, knowing fully well what waited for him there. If we look at, if we came to Palm Sunday, and we look at his entrance into Jerusalem, and we look at that Holy Week, and what would happen uh, leading into uh, Good Friday, and the crucifixion, and then even the resurrection, we would look at that and say, well, look at how he was betrayed. Look at how the Sanhedrin's envy, and how Pilate's spinelessness allows this to happen to our Savior and to our Lord. We'd be missing the point, because it would seem very involuntary. Jesus knew clearly when you read through Luke 9, 51 here, that these thoughts were, were in his mind. He knew very clearly what was going to happen. Jesus did not accidentally get put on the cross because of a web of deceit and lies. Jesus was going to the cross for your sins and for mine as our Redeemer, as our Savior, and as our Lord. The saving benefits of his death for sinners were not an afterthought. God had planned it out with infinite love for you and for me. Jesus set his face to fulfill the mission to die in Jerusalem for our sake. John chapter 10, he says this, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Though reason told him to stay, it would be reasonable for Jesus to want to stay. Jesus resolved to go. Secondly, Pride is fed by competition. Humility is fed by cooperation. Pride is fed by competition. Humility is fed by cooperation. So Jesus sets, steals his eyes, is what the message translation says. He steals his eyes towards Jerusalem. Verse 52, however, look what his disciples are doing. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. 
So he sends his disciples ahead to prepare some things as he is going to stop in the Samaritan city on his way to Jerusalem. And they were not welcoming him there. Why? Because he was headed to Jerusalem. You see this, this divide between the Samaritans and the Israelites was very real. The Jews and the Samaritans were constantly fighting with each other. That's why the common parable that most of us know about the Good Samaritan is such a wild story. Because the Samaritans and the Jews were constantly fighting with one another. This trouble had started not long after Moses brings the 12 tribes of Israel into the promised land. Then later at the death of Solomon, so that's King David's son, Solomon, when he dies, you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah in the south, and Samaria is in that northern kingdom. There's this divide that happens in the kingdom, and this is, is blamed by the Jews, blame the Samaritans, the Samaritans blame the Jews, and the two kingdoms are often in disagreement. When they found out that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem, they wanted nothing to do with him. He was not welcome in their city. They are fighting with each other. Pride is felt, fed by competition. Humility is fed by cooperation. Verse 54, look what his disciples do. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and he and his disciples went to another village. James and John, this discussion, this argument between the two of them has already been going on. If you go back to verse 46, it says, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Again, they are beginning this journey to Jerusalem. And what do they see at the end of that journey? They see popularity. They see prestige. And so they want to figure out where they are, where is their seat in the kingdom, where is their spot. And so this argument starts between the two of them. And in this chapter, Jesus brings up a child. And he, he pulls up the child and he says, unless any of you have the faith of a child or you have the position of this little child, you will not even understand what it means to be part of the kingdom. As Americans, we need to be on guard because our culture thrives on competition. It does not thrive on cooperation. That is not something that we actually put very high on our priority list. We want to win even or especially if it means that we can crush the opposition. Just winning is not enough. Crushing the opposition is enough. If we promote teamwork, it is only because we want our team to crush, humiliate the other team. This has its place in sports. I think it's okay that we want the Bills to win today. That's, that's fine. But when it finds its way, and it has clearly found its way into our politics right now, that this crushing of the opposition or this argumentative nature of what is going on all around us, this fighting back and forth of, of assuming that the other side is entirely wrong rather than understanding that there needs to be some cooperation between the two, has no place in the hearts of Christians. Here, James and John, the sons of thunder. He already called them that in Mark chapter 3. Here we get a glimpse of why. He says, Jesus, we're on our way to victory. Nothing can stop us now. Let the fire fall. I mean, they are ready to annihilate what they see as the competition. Something I want to remind us as a church, we need to remember that other Christians are not our competition. Do you understand that? Other churches in this area, we meet with as leadership often. We meet with regularly. They are not our competitors. They are our companions. It is our responsibility to cooperate as well as we can with other believers. Why? We are on the same team. And even in that as well, 
It is not our responsibility to take someone who is far from Christ and humiliate them or make a fool of them or yell at them because they do not understand or they do not agree with us. The purpose is to be showing the heart of Christ. And what does Christ do here? He turns and rebukes his disciples and they move on to another town. He doesn't even address the problem there in the Samaritan city. Though reason told him to stay, Jesus resolved to go. Pride is fed by competition. Humility is fed by cooperation. And thirdly, fans are inspired by Jesus. Fans are inspired by Jesus. Followers, however, are interrupted by Jesus. Fans are inspired by Jesus. Followers are interrupted by Jesus. Each of these men represents three type of people today, all of them who would be called fans. As we go through the rest of this passage, you'll see that laid out there. I don't know if you were watching uh, football yesterday, uh, Mariota, the quarterback for Tennessee. That was an inspiring thing to be able to watch them come back and win the game, a very close game. If you saw it, he actually threw a touchdown pass to himself. I mean, the craziest thing you've ever seen. It really happened. I saw it with my own eyes on the TV, so that means that it was probably real. It was incredible. It was inspiring. That's what a fan of the game of football would be able to say. Whether you like that guy or not, whether you like that team or not, it is inspiring to watch a quarterback put the team on their back and go out and win the game. They were down 18 points at halftime. They come back to win the game in dramatic fashion. Very inspiring. That's what a fan can look at and see. However, as we look at these three different people, they think that they are followers of Christ, and yet they are simply fans. Verse 57, as they were walking down the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You can write these subpoints if you want down in your margin. Just say, when, excuse me, wherever. Will you go with Jesus wherever? He says, I will follow you wherever you want me to go. So you may have come forward at church. You may have written this on a, on a bulletin insert or something like that. God, wherever you want me to go, I will go. Until he says, go to, and he fills in the blank. I want you to go there. In the Old Testament, we see this with Jonah. Jonah's a prophet of the Lord. He says, I'll go wherever you want me to go. And he says, go to Nineveh. And he goes in the opposite direction. He says, I'm going to Tarshish. I'm not going to Nineveh. You're crazy. I'm not going there. Those people are mean. As they're walking down the road, the man says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to nest. If you're going to follow me, that means that you are not going to have a place to call home. This specific person, this specific scenario, he knows the condition of that man's heart is that he will not leave the things that he loves. He says, I will go with you wherever you want me to go. He has a specific thing in mind. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, not be a fan of me, it's going to cost you. Secondly, he said to another man, follow me. There it is again. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Will you go with Jesus whenever is the question that's being asked. So first the question is asked wherever. Secondly, whenever. Jesus says the time is now. Let the dead bury their dead. Most commentaries actually look at this, and they don't believe that the father, the father had actually passed away at that moment or that, 
that he wasn't like waiting on the funeral, that the, the man was probably elderly, was, was sick, was ill. And so he said, let me wait for my father to die after I bury him. Then I will be able to fulfill following you, Jesus. Jesus' eyes are set on Jerusalem. He is resolved to go. He knows what's waiting there for him. And he says to this man, whenever is right now. Will you respond? Will you follow Jesus whenever? Thirdly, still another. Here's a third man, verse 61. I will follow you, Lord. You see this? You should circle these in verses 57, 59, and 61. You'll see the words follow. I will follow. Do you understand the responsibility of those words of follow? I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. 62, Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The third question is, will you go with Jesus whatever it is that he wants you to do? Whatever it is that he wants you to do. Wherever, whenever, and whatever. I grew up on a farm. I've shared that here a number of times. Actually, we had a leadership meeting earlier, and I I was talking, had a conversation, and I shared one of the farm idioms uh, that I grew up with, and every single one of them looked back at me like a new calf looking at a new gate. And that was the idiom I shared with them, and they also had no idea what I was talking about. But this idea of the plow, if you, it doesn't matter whether they were using a mule probably or using an animal to, to plow the field. You do that with a tractor today, same thing. Now they, in the Midwest they have GPS coordinates to be able to set to make sure that you are aimed at what you started at. Because if you're looking back, looking all over the place, your tractor's going to be wandering all over the field and you're not going to have straight cornrows at the end of the thing. That's what this is talking about whether it's in a modern-day context right now, if you were to build a bridge over a river, you would want to know that when it lands on the other side, when the two people are, are connecting those pieces, that they are actually aimed at the, at the point. That's the point that's being made here. And Jesus is replying, well, put the hands upon whatever the work is that you are doing. If you are looking back, wondering if you're doing the right thing, how will you be sure that you are pursuing the kingdom of God? Will you go with Jesus, whatever it is that he has asked you to do? So here's the points this morning. The reason told him to stay, Jesus resolved to go. Pride is fed by competition. Humility is fed by cooperation. And thirdly, fans are inspired by Jesus, but followers are interrupted by Jesus. Jesus was not going to allow these followers to be fans. He interrupted their thought, their time, their timeline, their plans. How many of you have some really great plans for 2018 for what God wants you to do? What if Jesus interrupts that plan? What if Jesus says, the whenever that you have planned out for this year just became right now? The whatever it is that you think that you are supposed to be doing this year, that whatever just changed to something entirely different. The where you thought I wanted you to go this year, I'm making it clear to you right now that wherever is entirely different than what you expected, and it's not in the comfort of your bubble. Jesus interrupts the lives of his followers. Will you go with Jesus? He's calling you. He's calling you to go to a place, wherever, he says, a place that you don't know. For some of you, he calls you to move from being a fan to being a follower, and that in itself is a place that you don't know and you don't understand because you've been a fan for so long that you don't understand what it means to be a follower. Being a fan is being a spectator in a position that watches and sees what happens and you cheer and you're excited and you're inspired. But a follower means that you get up and you take action and you do so now. You are interrupted from what you have been doing. 
The action that he calls you to is different than the action of the people next to you and around you. So some, some of you today, that getting up is getting up and coming to the cross. Coming to the cross for the first time of understanding, okay, I've been a fan or I've been a spectator for too long. And today, Jesus is calling you to take action and respond. You cannot follow Jesus if you refuse to come by the cross. You cannot follow Jesus and say, I think a lot of your teachings are good. I love your parables. I love all that you talk about. But I'm not sure that I can get behind the fact that you say that you are the son of the almighty God. And so I'll just follow your teachings, your good principles, the good moral code that you lay out before me. And Jesus says, that is not the path that I've resolved to take. This path goes directly by the cross. And if you're following me, you will do what? Take up your cross and follow me. Part of the reason many in this room will not come, similar to what is seen by these three men, you're not willing to follow him wherever, whenever, and no matter whatever he has asked of you. Some of you will make the position to move forward, however, from being a fan to being a follower because the reason you won't make that step is because your GPS is broken. What do I mean by that? Whether you're using a phone or using a GPS, a literal GPS, uh, the, the baseline of all of those things is set on, uh, if, you, if you program something in, the first point of direction is what? Where you are right now. GPS will often even ask that. Do you want to go from your current location some of you have a misunderstanding of where your current location is. That's what these three questions with these three men was addressing. They said, I will follow you. And Jesus said, you've got your GPS is not calibrated correctly. Your current location is not correct. Your assessment of where you are is not correct. If we're ever going to get to a place of being a follower of Jesus, we have to know where we are presently. As you look forward in 2018 and seeing what God is going to do in your life this year, you had better start with an accurate representation of where you are right now. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, this is the message translation. This is in your bulletins as well. It says this, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. This is Jesus speaking. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Whether you're approaching this from the dorm room, from the classroom, from the boardroom, from the living room, you need to understand that Jesus is driving. Jesus has resolutely set his eyes. He is resolved. He is going forward. Are you going to follow him there? Now, here's the problem with most New Year's resolutions. We decide that we are going to do something different than we've ever done before. I'm going to do 190 push-ups. I'm going to do them by this afternoon. And we try. But this is different. Because this is not in your power or in my power. This is in his power. When Jesus says, I am going to go to Jerusalem, follow me, he is also saying, I will lead you there. Follow me. It is going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. But it is a mistake for you and I to look at this passage and say, well, if I could just be like Jesus, then I would be able to resolve to do the right things and therefore do the right things. The Apostle Paul says, the very things that I want to do, that's what I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, that's what I am doing. That's the Apostle Paul who wrote half of the New Testament or more. 
you and I are not going to be able to white-knuckle our way through 2018. We need to understand that Jesus is driving. Will you follow Jesus wherever, whatever, and whatever he says to do? I think it's appropriate this morning that we have a time of communion or the Lord's Supper because that's what this meal is really about. It is not the Baptist table. It is not Randall's table. It is the Lord's table and the Lord's Supper. If you're one of our communion attendees, if you'll come down and help me out here. So when we look at communion, the Lord's Supper is a time to talk about the death on the cross. And as we look at this passage, we see that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he knows what is waiting for him there. This is a symbolic meal. This meal is demonstrative of what Jesus did for you and for me. He gave his body and his blood for you and for me. He knew what that price would be. You and I do not have to pay that price to be followers of God. Jesus Christ has paid that price for us. That's why we share this meal together, because it's his meal. Because he has already paid the sacrifice. And we get to come and we get to celebrate the fact that he has done that. But do so with an understanding of the weight of what he has done. The weight of following Christ is much different than being inspired by Christ. Following Christ requires sacrifice. Following Christ requires a difficult journey, a difficult path. But we celebrate what he has done for us and that he gives us the power to do so. So we don't believe that it's Jesus' literal body that we are breaking or his literal blood that we are drinking. And we use grape juice. We're a dry communion here. If you are coming from a different church, you are welcome. Why? Because this is the Lord's table. This is not Randall's table. You are more than welcome to be able to share in this time with us this morning. And what we'll do is we'll hand out the plates and we'll send them. They'll go, they'll go back and then they'll come forward in a minute. Then we'll also take the juice and we'll take those back. The guys will come forward as well. That's how we do it here. There's nothing special about that. Just an opportunity to be able to include everyone here this morning. Include you in this step to follow Christ. This step, this choice to break away from competition and actually cooperate with fellow believers. Commune with them. This choice to understand that Jesus is who he says he is. And when he said, I'm going on a journey to Jerusalem, will you follow me there? That that call and that command was not just to the first century disciples. That was to you and to me. So the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. So because that's the way he started, that's the way we will start this morning as well. As we hand out the bread, will you take a moment to be able to assess where your GPS is calibrated today? As you look at 2018, as you hold that bread in your hand or hold that cup in your hand, will you take a moment to assess where it is that you are and challenge yourself that you will put yourself on a trajectory and follow Jesus to Jerusalem?